Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA Podcast. I'm your host Joseph Coyne and this is episode 50. Big occasion, we've just cracked the half century. Now besides all the great guests on the podcast, the people who help us bring this to you and the other coaches, physios, teachers out there, is Val Performance. Look, Val Performance, great company. They make the Nordboard, the Force Frame, Human Track, and Force Decks. Big, big fan of Force Decks for jump diagnostics. We've also been starting to use Force Decks for shoulders with the ASH test at the UFC Academy. Uh, to go along this with this test, we're also going to look at complementing it with the Force Frame, some sort of internal, external rotation assessment, considering the amount of shoulder issues we see with the MMA athletes where we work. So, Look, all of our products, super user-friendly. They give you data, your connection immediately. If you're in the market, please reach out to them, valperformance.com, shoot them an email, info at Performance. Now, we couldn't have picked a better guest for episode number 50. We have Ross Smith on the show. He's one of the real leaders in Australian strength conditioning. He's currently strength conditioning lead at the Australian Institute of Sport. There's not a more prestigious organisation almost around the world than Australian Institute of Sport, and has over 20 years strength conditioning experience across multiple sports and organisations. The past 15 years... He's been at the AAS, he's worked with boxing, taekwondo, judo, athletics, cycling, rowing, basketball, modern pentathlon, water polo, winter sports. He's done a lot of different sports, but today we're really going to dive into his work with combat sports on the podcast, so buckle your seatbelts, we're going to get started. Okay, Ross Smith, mate, thanks for being on the AFCA podcast. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for the invite, mate. Look, uh, long time, uh, long time admirer, first time, first time uh, proper chatter. Um, yep. I, I want to talk to you firstly about how, 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 and why did it all begin for you? Like, what's your background? Um, what's your experience? I know you got a track and field background. How did it all come to be that you're in your current position? Uh, yeah, it's probably interesting for me because I'm probably not a, a standard uh, S&C pathway. Um, I did a double degree in biology and chemistry at university um, and then went on um, and did a big thing in track and field and became an international track and field coach So, or coaching international standard athletes to Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games and the like. And then I um, became the assistant coach to the Australian head sprint coach, Michael Kamel. So when I started doing that, I was working in Sydney and we were based around uh, N-Swiss, and I started to do a lot of the, the S&C work for that squad. And uh, at that time, the head of S&C at N-Swiss then came to me and went, well, you're doing a good job. Do you want to expand out and do more S&C um, with more sports, but athletics particularly? So that's where I started and went and then did the one level two uh, ASCA and, and got my qualifications and then went back to me and went, yeah, I'll, I'll take that job if you've got it for me. So um, I sort of fell into SNC a little bit, but um, very much glad I did. I love it now. Yeah, 100%. Like track and fields, like you got weightlifting, the grandfather's SNC, right? And track and fields, the grandmother. And so it's yep. a really easy, uh, easy conversion for a track and field coach to become SNC. coach. Yeah, I think the, the the basic understanding of how you develop a movement pattern is, is, is quite strong in track and field, so that transitions across the S&C quite well. 
Mm-hmm. So you you were in Swiss for a while, and then you you made the move down to the AIS. What happened there? Uh, yeah, so I was working in Swiss, and um, my uh, when I was working with Michael Kamel, and he got a job over in England, so he was leaving. So I was then looking around at, well, what do I do? I was having discussions with uh, a university uh, over in the US about being a, a track and field coach over there with them, and the AIS position came up. Uh, and I got asked, oh, you should apply, just, just throw your hat in the ring. And I went, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Um, so I did, and I'm uh, very fortunate. Um, I, I got the job. So, um, yeah, I've been here now just on 15 years. So Yeah, wow. Wow, 15 years in Canberra, mate. You're still going strong. 15 years in Canberra, and I, uh, I have a house here now. I'm just, just been building it and everything else. So I think I'm a, sort of a Canberra local. Yeah, cool, cool. And, and when you first got to the AIS, um, what 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 were you predominantly doing? Still working with track and field athletes, uh, strength and conditioning for other sports. What what was the what was the uh, sort of role when you first got there? Yeah, so when I first arrived, there was only uh, four S and C coaches at the AIS, including uh, Julian Jones, who was the head at the time. Um, but he virtually went overseas second week I was there. Um, so I was just giving a, a suite of sports that I, I worked with. So basically I started with track and field, women's basketball, boxing, um, water polo, uh, winter sports, which is a lot of skiing, that sort of stuff, and just any odds and ends that came up. So my main role was basically stuck in the gym um, and just doing that long hours and working that space, which is – one, it was an eye-opener to me just working with such a broad range of sports that I hadn't in the past. Um, and they get a big challenge, which is probably really good for me yeah. to step outside of track and field. Yeah, it's a great environment working in an institute-type setting for a strength and conditioning coach, I, I feel, just because you get exposed to all these different sports and, you, and you, have to, you have to start to sort of rethink how you do things or why you do things and, and obviously absorb all their cultures and their sort of, traditional practices and go there must be a reason why they're doing some of these what why they're doing them and and how do we improve on them yeah absolutely and a lot of it is just how you build the relationships i suppose um which is how i started with 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 boxing um i went to I was assigned boxing, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to the training sessions. And I, I walked in and, and introduced myself to the head coach, who was a, a gentleman named Bodo Andreas, uh, ex-German coach and uh, coaching in Australia. Um, and he's basically turned around towards me, I don't need you, I do it all myself. Uh, so that was an interesting introduction to boxing. Um, but, yeah, over time, I just spent, I said, oh, well, understand can I just jump in and, and uh, watch some of your sessions to see what you do, just so I can learn? He allowed me to do that. And I slowly, progressively built a relationship with him and, and developed, uh, and developing that relationship, I reached a point where he said, oh, there's a couple of little things. Can you give me some advice on this? And that progressed. And by the end of a year or so working with him, I was running all the S&C sessions, all the gym-based sessions, um, and then started doing a lot of the conditioning stuff with the boxing guys as well. Um, and after so a couple of years working with him, I was then he asked me into actually lecturing some of the um, coaching courses for boxing, which he ran in Australia. So uh, it's amazing how he can start off, don't need you, go away, to a point where 
you build a really strong relationship and really strong partnership. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Like as a technical coach too, you're you're always like there's always people coming in trying to ch- maybe change what you you want to do or potentially interfere with what you want to do, and then so it's really hard for them to give you give you that space or to give you responsibility. But when they kind of get to know you and trust you, they're like they can't do everything and they know they can't do everything. So it's just that time process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it took time with, with, with Bono. I would have showed it up to maybe six weeks of training, just showing up to training and just hanging around. And he hardly, he didn't ask me anything. He didn't ask me to do anything. So it just takes time and, and a little dedication and, and, and having an open minding and starting to try and gain information from them. So you can start speaking their language and understand their thoughts and ideas. If you can do that, it's far easier to design a program that fits their outcomes rather than walking in with a preconceived idea of this is what it should look like. Mm, 100%, 100%. So sp- speaking of boxing, I know you're, uh, you've got a big role to play in the combat, Olympic sport combat, uh, Olympic combat sport preparation down there at the AOS. What, tell us about your role there. Um, yeah, over the years, it's been uh, quite varied. So when I first started, like the boxing was a COE, so a based on-site program for the men's program. Um, I also worked um, with a couple of rehabs around Taekwondo athletes and then worked a little bit with Taekwondo. And I've done a little bit with, with uh, judo as well. Um, but my main thing I've worked with over the years has been, been the boxing program. Um, so I worked with the men's boxing program for like seven, eight years, um, in through two Olympic cycles. Um, and then their program got cut, but the women's program started up three, four years ago. Now I've had a big amount of time with, with those ladies, uh, over the last three or four years doing a lot of their, their strength work, but also a big focus around, um, injury management, return, post-injury, and also building a lot of their conditioning, especially their off-leg conditioning work. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. So, mate, let, let's talk about these combat sports. What, what do you, like when you first sit down and go, okay, what do I need to think of when I'm going to design a training plan for, for these athletes, guys or girls? Uh, what, what goes through your mind? What do you need to consider? Uh, probably the first thing for me is understanding the sport. So do you understand the sport? What are the actual physical requirements of the sport? Because you look at, say, boxing, for example, you, you, you look at it thing, oh, well, you need a lot of arm endurance and sore punching. But in the ring, the first thing that goes is their legs. So uh, fatigue-wise and, and their ability to then move effectively in the gym, in the, in the ring drops, and then their arms drop. So understanding this basic things like that, how the sport works, uh, what are the rounds, what are the physical requirements, what are the basic structures of the year and how they do a lot of amateur fighting. Just simple things like understanding that uh, at Olympics you have to fight maybe five, five, round, or five, five rounds, five, five fights, that you have to weigh in every fight. So you can't do the, the, the weigh-in that a professional fighter will do because you just can't physically do that. Um, so basically understanding of the modalities of the sport is where I start. And then I step down a level and look at what are the key physical requirements of the sport? What does that look like? Uh, and understand um, exactly yeah, exactly what they look like and how to train them and, and what modalities you're going to use in that space. And then you look at 
yeah, how you're going to affect change to make them a better fighter. Um, once you've done all those things, you can then start looking at exactly what type of exercise or or training modality you're going to use to get the outcome you want. Okay, awesome, awesome. Um, with the with, I'd really be interested in say because you talked about taekwondo and boxing. I'd really be interested. Yep. What would be the the differences in physical requirements between the two? Does that impact uh, if there are? Like to my mind, there would be some, but if there aren't, or if there are, please enlighten us. Uh, so please. Obviously, made issue with boxing and taekwondo. One, the, the taekwondo guys, most of their their strike force comes from their legs, uh, so it's the kicking thing they do the most damage with. So their ability to be explosive and powerful and create a lot of rotational force through their legs is probably a big requirement of taekwondo. The nature of um, boxing is is more upper body. So how do they create that upper body rotational force and power? You're looking at that. Then you look at their structure of their competitions. Taekwondo, the, the length of, the, of the, each round is short. For, a lot shorter and it can be very short because they can tie, time out on it or get knocked out or knock the other person out. But um, they'll fight multiple fights in one day. So that's a different sort of recovery strategies you need and how you structure that, whereas boxing, you might only fight every second day. Um, so there's different sort of thought processes around that. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the differences between Taekwondo and boxing is more uh, perceived than reality. The basic physical requirements of the two athletes who want to be a, a strong, explosive athlete, uh, both of those are, are paramount in Taekwondo and boxing. So the basis of your training isn't massively different just some of the focus areas of, of how you create that force and how you create that power might be will vary from one to the other. Mm, that makes sure. sense. For sure, for sure. So, mate, what would, what would like, a, a training week look like? Like, what would these guys be doing, like, on a Monday morning, Monday afternoon, on a, on a Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, that sort of thing, in, in an Olympic yeah. program at, at the AIS? So if you take the boxing uh, guys as an example, when they're at the AS, they're, they're full-time athletes. So they don't they do minimal amounts of work and they do some education, which we, we try and get them to do. I think through that basic post-sport is important. But they virtually are full-time athletes. So my, all my boxing athletes um, in the current program – They'll do some sort of conditioning, either on legs or off legs, in the running base is generally how we do it, uh, six days a week, every morning. Um, they'll then do a gym-based session that's either um, in the gym or in the, in the boxing area, but really basic strength-based, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so five days a week. And then they'll do boxing technical stuff or uh, sessions um, every afternoon. Um, oh, actually, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They'll do technical stuff, boxing. So they do a large number of training sessions. And um, but my role around that is that, that speed, um, the, around the conditioning and the, and the strength work. So... Most of the athletes off-season will do uh, that five sessions, maybe three strength-based sessions. 
Mm-hmm. The other two sessions, the Tuesday and the Thursday, will be more around circuits-based session or circuit work. Um, their running stuff is um, generally the, in boxing. The running is, is off-season is fairly long uh, aerobic. It's where the boxing guys come from. Um, I like to do a bit more repeat sprint, repeat sprint efforts. Uh, and the, the boxing stuff in the afternoon, the boxing sessions in the afternoon are run by by the boxing coach. And they're um, to the most fairly technical boxing sessions. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And then so the next thing I'll be, I'll be really interested in is what do your, say, if you can give us an example of what a session, like one of your strength and conditioning sessions would look like inside that inside that week, like say say yep. you've got a guy and then, um, yeah, what would it look like? What would they, when they first come in the gym, warm up, and then what are they doing? They're doing squats or they're doing like a rotational press. Like what, what, what does it look like in the, in the scheme? Uh, so, yep. So I look at the, the athletes and go, what are we trying to achieve in the gym? Because the ability, what you do in the gym needs to really link into what they're doing boxing-wise. So I look at it in three areas. I look at it in um, basic proprioception areas. I look at it in strength areas. Um, and then I look at it in real pure technical areas. So how to do technique. But the boxing technique is not done in the gym. So I there's nothing that's boxing technique pure boxing technique done in the snc sessions that's done in the technical sessions in the afternoon we have that luxury because we do multiple sessions in a day and they're full-time athletes but me mimicking a a boxing movement pattern generally doesn't have the desired outcome so my key outcomes in the gym is around that proprioceptive awareness and developing strength and power that rate of force development work so I say my strength day is maybe three times a week. In case the competition might be two and and uh, other, other three days of circuit type training. But the basic strength elements, again, is, is building the strength elements you basically desire in an athlete um, for strength and power. There are strength and power and initiation of the movement in the boxing comes from the legs. So good strength and power in the legs is essential for, for a boxing athlete. So a lot of it is based around squats, deadlifts, lunges, these basic movement patterns that I do a fair bit of. Uh, then, I, again, you look around how we do some uh, the upper body work. Um, I do very little bench press with my boxing athletes, uh, maybe because they do so much pushing movement patterns when they're boxing, their imbalance is generally to the rear, so to the posterior so i do a lot of pulling face athletes uh movement patterns but my my pushing movement patterns i generally try and do in a way that creates a link to the legs and creating that rotational force so you can still do heavy loaded exercises but how they link um simple things a single arm dumbbell press rather than a normal bench press creates that torsion through the body and can they hold and control that position uh, as a probably an example of how I wouldn't do bench press, but I'll do a single arm dumbbell brent in that space. Um, I have historically done some Olympic lifting. Um, I don't do massive amounts of it now uh, with the boxing guys. And that's not because I don't think boxing athletes should do Olympic lifting or shouldn't do Olympic lifting. 
I just don't have the time with them to develop the the longer time the, the technical capabilities for them to do it to get the the outcomes I want to achieve from an Olympic style lifting. So I do Olympic variations, clean pulls instead of cleans, um, snaps, pulls instead of snaps, these sort of things. But I don't do the full Olympic style movement patterns. If I had them for longer periods of time, I suppose it's the nature of of boxing that they spend time at the AAS, they spend time in their home environment, which is small, but also a lot of time overseas and in training camps and competing. So I might see them for a three-month block and then not see them for two, three months while they travel overseas and compete. So that becomes an issue in, in developing the technical capability to get the physiological outcome I want from Olympic lifting. Um, but yeah, it comes back to that basic premise of developing in my strength sessions, basic strength power athletes. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's cool. I suppose also with the Olympic lifts, there'd probably also be a consideration around the wrists um, with like cleans and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Male athletes probably more than females. So females aren't too bad. Consideration around the but a lot of that comes from shoulder range and flexibility. Yeah, mobility rather than flexibility. So if they don't have the shoulder range to get the, the elbow off in the right position, it does load the wrist a lot. The wrist a lot. Um, so we have those issues around that. The classic male boxer is very much hunched shoulder. Those pecs really switched on and pulling the shoulders forward. So that's not a great position to start any sort of clean movement pattern from. Mm-hmm. So, but then there's you look at the the major injuries in boxing, if you take out the broken hands and the broken faces, this sort of stuff, a lot of the injuries come around um, out of shoulders in around that. Uh, backs, have a major issue with those. And surprisingly, a lot of running-based injuries, so Achilles and hamstrings, um, generally around not controlling, running loads effectively and well in yeah, their training. Sure, sure. And is there anything you found really helpful for like the shoulders or for the elbows um, or for the, because obviously there's a whole heap of rotation that goes on in boxing as well for the lower back. Like what have been, what are your go-tos to, to uh, try and identify those things or manage those? Uh, yep. So the big things I look for around the shoulders is basic good shoulder health. Um, I, I see a lot of, ath- lot of, especially male boxing athletes who come in and you, you try and do a chin-up or something like that and they can't move the scapulas at all. So it becomes this upper body um, arm pulling exercise rather than the lat pulling and the scap moving through where, where it should move. So developing that basic movement pattern is effective. Um, but developing that's the, probably the big thing to look at in that space, you can develop the, the range and the movement pattern, but if you don't develop the strength through that range, you're just opening yourself up for injury. It's not a one or the other. So you can't do, um, just go, okay, this athlete has poor shoulder mobility. So all we're going to do is just work on um, our shoulder range mobility, working with a physio and develop that and do some little therapy exercises. But as soon as they throw, throw a punch in high velocity and high impact forces, if they're not strong through the entire range that you've created for them by increasing their flexibility and mobility, 
they're going to be really limited and they'll probably end up having a, a shoulder injury out of it. So sometimes creating more range to the shoulder creates injuries because you haven't developed a, a holistic approach to developing strength through that range at the same time. So again, you look at um, exercises that um, develop strength through the range of motion that you want. That doesn't necessarily have to look like a boxing movement pattern, but develop strength through range. So that's how we work with the shoulder. The back is also the same. The big issue you see with uh, probably backs, and it's going to sound strange, is athletes who can't link their, their upper bodies to their feet have back injuries. So you see an athlete who is... Um, Looks like their upper body is disjointed from their lower body when you when you watch them do a like a punch or or med ball throw or anything like this. And it's it's quite surprising how often you see that in a boxing athlete that they don't link their upper body and lower body very well. Yeah, right. So a lot of the backs is about uh, developing a, a linkage and how you plant your feet, how you create rotation, how you create. Uh, that brace position to apply a force and apply a punch. So um, it's a basic thought process. Um, so when you throw a punch, you ask most people, where do you initiate the movement pattern from? People say, oh, the hand, well, probably not. So it'll link the body and limits your power. Then they go, well, if you're going to throw a punch, you initiate from the, from the back foot. So you push yourself forward. The issue with that, you never want to do that in boxing because as soon as you push off the back foot and push yourself forward, you're closing your gap into your person, uh, into the opposition person. But if you miss or don't knock the guy out, your gap's now a lot closed, uh, a lot closer, and they'll hit you twice on the way back out. So you're not keeping your range, you're not keeping your, your punch length if you just push off the back foot. So you need to push off the front foot and the back foot at the same time, same time to create a rotation where your centre of mass stays within your, within your feet so it's not going in front of your foot so you're not falling forward. That creates length in the punch and also power in the punch. So if you can't do that effectively, you generally end up with a fair bit of back loading because you're trying to create this rotation all from the back rather than using the drive from your legs. And that creates back issues and limits your power in your punch and also limits your range in your punch. Mm-hmm. If that all makes sense. Yeah, 100%, 100% man, 100%. Like definitely uh, you've got to make the breaks as strong as possible with uh, any throwing athlete or like in the shoulder. Like the, uh, Otherwise, if your breaks are weak, then the brain's going to say, hey, don't, don't do that too fast, otherwise we might injure ourselves. Um, and, and and same with the back, the the whole the whole uh, just coordinative ability, and, and I'd say it, it doesn't just go for boxing. I'm sure you've got many examples in other sports, but being able to actually properly link things together in a coordinated fashion is, uh, is something that we probably overlook a lot as strength and conditioning coaches. We say, oh, the muscle's weak, or oh, we need to get it stronger, but it might just be that they're not the intramuscular coordination. They're not just turning things on at the right time. And turning things off at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. I see that quite a bit. These, some of these athletes, and especially you go back into my track and field, and some of the throwers I've worked with, phenomenally strong athletes, but just cannot um, coordinate the movement. 
cannot link the movement together effectively. Um, and probably an extreme example that I've seen and going back to track and field is I've worked a lot with uh, Paralympic athletes and some of their um, limitations to their, their disability um, create these, like that, that inability to link together is massively overemphasized. So challenging them how to find a way. So some of these guys, because of disabilities, can't do it. It's impossible to do. So how do you create um, strength? How do you create forces within the body that allow that power to be linked through the entire body and be effective in that space? Uh, and again, I've seen it quite a bit with, with boxing athletes that to a degree do it, but don't do it really well and effectively. And it, it also makes them, if they can't do it effectively, generally they'll be off balance in the ring and also they'll, um, their movement patterns will be ineffective. So they'll look a bit slower in the gym, in the, in the ring. And also they'll fatigue a lot more quickly because mm. they're, they're doing a lot of work that they don't need to do. Mm. Uh, so linking, developing of strength, linking it to effective movements and then putting it in the ring and getting to actually how they utilise that becomes really important. 100%, 100%. True words never been spoken, Ross. True words never been spoken. Mate, you talked about uh, proprioceptive awareness. I'd be really interested yep. in what you do with your guys and girls in that regard. Um, yeah, please please uh, uh, fill us in. Yeah, a lot of it is just about understanding where the body is in space and, um, and how to control and how to move things effectively. So... We, can, we all start with a, the very basic sort of stuff in proprioception. So can you stand on one leg and balance and can you do that with your eyes closed and understand where things are in space? Um, but again, that's not elite sport. and People go move past that very quickly. But the basic principle stays the same. So I have a series of exercises I work with with these guys uh, about how to virtually stand on one leg and be aware. So basically start on... So if I use that stand on one leg progression, so can you stand on one leg and balance and not fall over? But the key thing around that is not only can you stand on one leg, can you actually hold your foot on the floor so the foot is actually linked to the ground? So you're not on your heels, you're not on your toes, you're not on the outside or inside of your foot. You're balanced through that foot. So once you've got that right, the next progression is can you move and can you do that in a way that's um, self-directed? So can you stand on foot and touch touch your hands on the ground? Can you stand on one foot um, and do some basic movement patterns, a quarter squat, uh, an RDL? Uh, can you do some basic control movement patterns? So are you aware? And a lot of it is can you feel where the foot is in space? Can you feel the floor and balance and be in control and know where it is? The next progression past that is to, can you do things that is reaction to other people? So a lot of the single leg balance control stuff I do in that space is around simple things. Can you stand on one leg and catch a tennis ball, throw it to each other? I do a little drill, which I do, I start with the boxing guys who do a lot of other sports now, where I call it the matrix drill you ever watch the matrix movies mm -hmm. uh, can you stand on one leg and the other person punches you in the head in slow motion and you have to avoid it so can you dark weave control balance and not move at all 
that foot is locked to the ground and can you go through raises motion avoiding another person's movement pattern to be effective in that space then the next progression past that is to do it in a dynamic way so i go back to the basic principles of can you do it in a controlled simple fashion so a simple hop and land can you do that in multiple directions can you do that in a, in a directed sense or self-directed sense where you're hopping backwards and forwards and moving can you hop and then touch something can you hop and catch at the same time and i progress that to simple drills where can you hop and take a hit and be bumped or even turn into a competitive drill where can you hop on the down and if you can touch the other person if they're hopping staying on one leg hopping as well if you can touch them between the elbow and the shoulder you get a point the other person get a point because can you hop and avoid and move in a small range and utilize and know where your body is in space so you're not off balance you can do things move fast and be effective so again that's a simple can i stand on one leg progression over multiple multiple different exercises but the whole principle is are you effective in standing on one leg and applying and controlling force if you can do that and be aware of your body in space and your balance and control that's a massive benefit to any sort of exercise that you do whether it's a strength exercise whether it's a, a running exercise whether it's a in the gym trying to punch or avoid exercise um, parameter so a lot of that stuff we I do in that space, but I do that something around that sort of proprioceptive control virtually every session I do with my boxing athletes and virtually every session I do with my track and field athletes. It really just comes part of the warm-up I do each day, um, just simple movement pattern drills. Yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. That's great. It's great. It's given, it's given me ideas right now. I've been writing that stuff down while you've been speaking. You know, oh, I'm going to try something around that. Um, mate, the, uh, you, you spoke about the running injuries and managing training load. Now, obviously, with a sport like boxing, they've got their road work and they've got their technical work and they've got their strength and conditioning. How do you start to like monitor, uh, and I know this is a big interest area of yours, how do you start to monitor training load across all those modalities uh, and what, what, what have you found that's been really successful? Uh, you go back to some of the basics. Um, the basic monitoring of load in a, training, in a training week, RPE times time, have these, these areas. I still like it, but it gives me a very – it gives me a little bit of information. The, then you need to look at that and go, well, load isn't load. Where's that load coming from? What's the type of load it's coming from? So I then like to look at things around my training week about the type of physiological loading we, I get in a training week. And I monitor that uh, for, for two reasons. But, uh, so basically looking at, is it a, a, a lactic loading? Is it an aerobic loading? Is it a, a lactic loading? What well, have a type of loading that physiological response to the training session is. Um, because you look at, one, I like to just mindset where that load's coming from. So, um, and then I also, you see it a lot in, in, in sports, like combat sports especially. I see it in, say, 400-meter runners and athletics, um, a lot of endurance-based, a lot of intensity, high-intensity-based endurance or repeat effort sports where 
the you look at their overall training week and we start ramping up to multiple sessions a day, but all the physiological type loading is very similar. So you get a case where you go to these type athletes that aerobic loading, just gentle, steady state aerobic loading, which is, which is beneficial to boxing as a to help them be more efficient in their recovery and their blood flow and all that sort of stuff. But they see it as it's too easy for them. So they ramp up the intensity a bit because it's got to be hard. They've got to sweat. Then the opposite end, which is the, which for, for me as an ex-sprinter, um, we have no issues with, that we're doing the real high-intensive, explosive power work and having a long recovery. They view that and they go, oh, this, this recovery is too long. So they shorten the recoveries right down. But because of that, the quality and the explosive and the power of the session is also decreased. So if you add those two together, all the training load becomes this middle ground type training. It's not pure high intensity. It's not pure aerobic. If you start putting in a lot of those type of sessions in the week, the monotony goes up, the overuse injuries go up, and, they, um, and you get a lot of injuries, and they, they end up more fatigued in that space. So I actually did an interesting thing uh, probably two years ago. The coach um, was on leave uh, for family reasons for, for nearly six to eight weeks. So I had a lot of the – this is the head boxing coach. So I took the girls for nearly eight weeks of training where I had total control of all training load. We decreased the boxing content because I'm not a boxing coach. I'm a level one boxing coach, but I'm not a boxing coach. I'll never say I will be. So I did some basic technical stuff in boxing. But I actually increased the overall training load in the training week and got less injuries. And they felt less fatigued at the end of our simple monitoring process of wellness monitoring. And I think my success in that was because I spread the type of training load out across the broader physiological range. So we did more training, more total load on the RPE type time but they didn't feel as fatigued from it. And then we end up with a lot less injuries. Our injury count, we've actually cleared most of our injuries in that space. So I'm really big of the view, load isn't load. Well, you need to start, RPE times time is, is a starting point, but then you need to look at exactly where it's coming from. Then also look at um, the impact versus non-impact loading. So I just went on my computer. Uh, impact versus non-impact loading. So you look at that and you go running for, say, six by one minute efforts is very different to sitting on a bike for six by one minute efforts. Mm -hmm. So that impact loading on the legs is important. So you look at a lot of running loading you get in boxing athletes um, a lot of it is overuse type running uh, injuries, so Achilles tendonitis, hamstring tendonitis type issues. Um, again, because most of their running load is that middle ground type stuff. So I'm big on spreading that running load out and getting more variability in the training load, but also then looking at how can I get that load and how essential is it for me in that space? So... My athlete, my 110 kilo super heavyweight male athlete 
going for a 10K run, what's the benefit to him if he's not a good runner? It's a hot, large number of impacts, large loading on his legs. And he's 110K. That's a massive amount of load. Can I get, or he wouldn't go for 10K, say a 5K run. Can I get him on a bike or in the pool or on a, on a maybe a rower doing some more longer cardio, more repeat effort work that gets the same, a similar physiological response and the same end outcome I want as a general aerobic session that changes the leg loading, which means we have less leg loading, less leg soreness, which means he can do better quality of his short repeat sprint efforts or shorter running efforts. So how we balance all these out in the training week is really important. So um, I'm big on, I say, looking at that, what's the total general load? Where's that load coming from physiologically? Or what does it look like? Mm -hmm. How we compare that? And also what the impact loading is. Um, Because, again, even looking at some of the boxing stuff, if they're hitting a heavy bag for 30 minutes or hitting, working with a coach on pads for 30 minutes, the actual number of punches they do might be very similar. Their loading on their arms by hitting a heavy bag is a lot higher than hitting the gloves of a, of a, of a coach. Mm. Um, so even understanding that about shoulder load is, is important. Um, so the understanding of where the load coming from is, is massive for me, not only just measuring what the load is. Mm. Mate, yeah, look, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's, it's uh, actually like it's your typical high-low like setup in track and field, right, where you'll do sort of A-lactate work on a Monday, aerobic work on a Tuesday as your tempo, alternate between the two to Friday, high-low, high-low, low, and then you probably do some speed endurance work on the Saturday, which will be your lactate zone. Um, yep. And, and it makes it heaps of sense to me. I'd be really interested in how you actually set the week up around the around those energy systems that physiological load that you talked about and also bearing in mind the the sort of impact non-impact consideration you just mentioned um yeah very interested in how you do that so i look at that no it's i suppose it's the way i start to write a program is is where i start from that i write a program and look at and i'll write the, the physiological load of what I want in the session or the outcome of the session probably is better terminology than physiological load. Physiological load is, is part of it. So what's the key outcome of that training session? So, and again, I don't think I do anything special or unique, but it's just understanding that key outcome of the training sessions and how you, you modify. So my three strength days are it's good recoveries, it's, it's a high strength, very high neural load, what to do in those three strength sessions then i i probably then around those look at the the boxing sessions as well off season in the boxing it's it's really technical work and you look at most of it it's very stop start the coach is doing a lot of coaching talking so a lot of those sessions are aerobic threshold type sessions at best and how they do those sessions in the afternoon so then in the mornings, when I'm doing running sessions, I'm looking at off-season developing a good lactate threshold, developing um, some real high-intensity, maybe some repeat sprint efforts, which sort of goes against the history of, uh, of boxing because they generally have a very linear approach where you do long and slow early in the season, you come and just do faster and faster stuff in season. 
I tend to mix that around a lot more and have a more conjugated approach to that. Um, and then look at how I structure my strength during the week. And I sort of use, I use my circuit days where there's two or three circuits during the week to target the areas that uh, I haven't achieved um, in the other training modalities. Um, so you look at a training week, again, running in the morning might be, Monday might be a high, high load day, whether it's a lactate day or a repeat sprint. Then running on Tuesday is a more general endurance day. Wednesday might be just an air, pure aerobic long run. Um, but again, looking at those, they can all be done, not necessarily as a running exercise, but as a, a bike or a pool or a, or a rowing exercise. I mix, you can mix and match depending on the athlete. And probably then repeat that again through the week to, to Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, then my three strength days and my circuits during the middle of the week, the Tuesday, Thursday sessions. Again, I, I play around with doing some uh, of adding load in the areas I want to lo- add load in. So I have some circuits that are might be an hour long, but they're just continuous for an hour. It's just I do a lot of uh, small muscle group work, a lot of adductors, abductors, abs, around shoulder strength and stability control, movement pattern. But it's just it's firstly an aerobic conditioning day for, for an hour. But the opposite end of that, I have circuits that are maybe five, six-minute uh, blocks of really high-end intensity. And I've, I've done some of those, and I've had um, got pure lactate sessions in, in this. Um, so I do those. So an example of that is um, I'll get them on a bike, and they do a max effort out-of-seat sprint on a bike on a high load. So after, like close to the max the bike can go. And that's to push as hard as I can. And straight off that, you go into some – exercises where high rep range 15 20 reps of maybe squats and and push-ups and sled pushes for for 30 meters and and some these big gross um big gross muscle movement patterns where they're using a lot of muscles and it's the same high intensity work and that session might last for about five six minutes that block and they might do that three or four times but again, I'm adding that high lactate loading. And I've done some lactate testing on those guys, and they're getting up into high teens mm-hmm. in lactate testing. In this, I'm getting that real high end because that's the end result I want to achieve. So I can do that, and there's very little, there's actually zero impact load on the body. So mm-hmm. I can do that in case if, if an athlete where, say, he's injured and can't do this high sprint stuff, but I can still find that way of doing that high lactate session in, in, in a training week. So um, the way I structure a week is probably fairly similar to anyone else's structure a week, that high intensity followed by a, a general, followed by a low in this flow of the week. But again, the, that's, I start with the end outcome and then I fit the, the training sessions that I want to achieve in a week to the end outcomes and and the limitations of the athlete, whether the athlete is, is injured or I say go back to my 110 kilos, super heavy, I don't want him doing long runs. It just destroys him So because uh, he's not a great runner to start with. So that's generally how I look at how I structure a training week and in, in, yeah, s- start with the outcome and then work about how you're going to structure the session around that. 
Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Do you have any sort of general rule of thumbs for the for the guys out there? Like, obviously, if they do a lactate session, like a, a true lactate session, yep. that's going to interfere with technical training. Maybe it'll interfere with the training the following day. Um, maybe not so with the aerobic stuff. Like, do you have any any general thumbs about rules of thumb about where you put certain things, how much time they have before you repeat that type of training, um, and also in regards to the impact, like. Any rules of thumbs about if we have an impact session, do we wait another two days or do we do it? Can we do an impact session the next day? Any anything along those lines? Uh, yeah, so I think I'm I'm not much different to, to most of the views today. If you do a uh, a high high speed day, or high high velocity or high explosive power, or a real big um, Olympic lifting session in the gym, you need two or three days to come to recover off that. So the high lactate, I wouldn't do a high intensity session within probably 24 hours of, of that again. So you've got those basic rules that uh, the, the pure neurologic, neurological sessions are the hardest ones to recover from. So I, I give a longer recovery. But then you can, once you plan those in the train week, so again, my high in speed intensity day might be the uh, monday and the, and the friday or the monday uh, yeah say monday and friday and my lactate day might be my tuesday saturday i think you can do it in that order but you can never have if you do monday tuesday you can't do anything high intensity on a wednesday so that becomes my my real aerobic type day mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it's those basic structures apply but then you look at how you fit in all your training sessions around that. Um, the interesting one comes around when you start doing three or four training sessions in a day. Um, and that comes a lot with the weight management around the sport because it's very much a weight-dependent sport. Um, but how you, you structure those sessions in a training day, knowing that if I've done a high-intensity session in the morning, I'm, there's going to be limitations in the gym session in the middle of the day for these boxing guys. They've got a morning, middle of the day, and afternoon session. They've got a high-intensity session in the run in the morning. There's going to be limitations. And it's not as if you don't train at that time or don't do some training. You just be mindful of total load and how those sessions link together. Because I always like to look at a, maybe a, a, a week or even a two week and how that all that load links together over two weeks because that's a better indication of how you structure a, a session rather than or oh, this training day or this training week or even look at longer periods of time, even those, those basic periodization blocks around a three-week training block, which is generally how I work with most of my boxing athletes, just a three-week training block. Because um, at the end of week two, uh, if they're doing – real hard off-season trainers with me, they're generally fried. So it doesn't mean we don't train in week three. We just don't do any high-intensity work uh, or we limit the high-intensity work, I should say. We, don't do, we do sort of some, but the, the total load is – total volume is, is limited. Um, so I, the basic principles that apply to, to these don't, don't change just because we change sports. So maintaining that thought process and, and, and structuring the week and putting those sessions together is, is yeah, I don't know that is the question. No, no it's, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. Um, and in regards to impact, non-impact, do you try and alternate days like that or do you try and go 
depending on the person, maybe it's a heavier guy, maybe two non-impact to one impact, some, something along those lines. Like what's uh, A little bit, that impact load stuff is really dependent on the person and how you can de- um, build it over time. Mm. So, so let's go to track and field. Back when I was a sprinter in, in the training squad in Sydney, we were doing um, six running sessions a week and uh, six gym sessions a week, plus we did additional conditioning around that as well. So sometimes we did three sessions a day. But that took us in years to build up to that point. I think the human body can handle it as long as you build up to the point over time. But again, I was a running-based athlete, and I think I was relatively technically good at running. So if you look at some of our boxing athletes, their technical running ability is so variable. Some guys run really well. Um, I had one athlete who, um, in the off-season, he decided to take a little time off. He, he ran a marathon for something fun to do. But he was a good runner. He can run every day and there's no issue for him. So his total volume for him, running every day, high and low intensity impact for uh, sprinting, to, he rarely ever got a leg injury. He had no real issue with it. Some of my other athletes um, have not as good a running technique or their weight is a lot higher than this, this guy was. Uh, so you start after really monitoring that at impact loading. So it is a case of you start early, maybe a day on, day off impact loading, and then maybe as they get better at it, they get used to it, add in a, a two-day, one-day cycle on, on your impact loading. Uh, and then being mindful um, of where that impact is coming from. Yes, it's coming from running, but if you're going into the stage to do a lot of sparring work, that's a impact loading. It's a bit different. Impact loading of taking a punch and taking a hit a lot. Not that they do massive volumes of it, but you need to be mindful how that affects their ability to recover for the next session as well. So uh, again, it goes back to those different things. Hitting a heavy bag is different to hitting uh, the gloves of a, of a boxing coach. Is different again to hitting, uh, being in, in doing sparring and, and, and doing multiple rounds of sparring. So um, how you structure those is important. But, yeah, I'll, I'll generally, in my impact loading, um, I'll start fairly conservative and and build as I see them have the ability to control that and, and develop their capabilities to do it effectively. Mm. So, um, again, I haven't... Uh, I've done massive amounts of technical running, uh, running technique with these guys, uh, but I do incorporate it in as part of most of the running sessions that I do do I do with them uh, to do some sort of technical ability around that as well. Yeah, right, right, mate. It's very interesting. You, you mentioned the weight cutting, and obviously that's a that's an aspect of of all the combat sports that uh, probably for people not working in it in those sports, it takes a while to get your head around, but. Do you – what happens when um, when you're thinking about the combat sports? Do you, do you modify things? Like do you have to be conscious of doing hypertrophy work with the guys? Do you um, also be conscious of uh, how much training volume you're giving them when they're in their weight cut, um, trying to get down to weight prior to a fight or prior to a, to a tournament? I'd really love to, love to hear how, how you approach that. Uh, so I'll start with the hypertrophy. The, the volume of work they do, uh, doing three sessions a day, these guys, if you do a, a, a basic 
strength training capability um, or strength program where low number of reps, high intensity, good recovery, and then most of your training is more that higher rep ranges or longer reps or continuous work. The the amount of uh, bodybuilding they or muscle bulk they put on is quite is very limited, um, and I don't really have massive problems with it. The biggest problem I have with it is probably uh, history and perception. So people perceive if you step in the gym, you put weight on, whereas I've actually got people stronger and more powerful and actually lost weight um, or lost total weight. They put on maybe a kilo of, of lean muscle mass but dropped two or three kilo of, of fat mass. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, putting a kilo of muscle mass that's usable is beneficial to performance outcome but also beneficial that your base metabolic rate is higher so it becomes easier to lose your fat um, and to strip down. Um, so as long as you stay away from the pure bodybuilding type training, these guys don't generally put on much muscle mass as a, as a rule, um, especially female athletes. Uh, they really struggle to put on muscle mass full stop to start with. So it's not a massive concern for me. Um, the making of weight and how you look at that is a is a huge thing, and it's. And I'll, I'll put a bit of a uh, how do I put a damper on this. There's uh, last year uh, a girl over in Perth died trying to make weight for an MMA competition. So it's, it's not a oh yeah we do it we can strip a heap of weight and we just drop it really quickly. It's a it's a massive health hazard doing it wrong. And it's and multiple people across the world have died doing it, so it's it's something we're really conscious of and really strong in our environment in, in dealing with. Um, so the basic around we have a view that um, if you have to drop more than about a kilo, half two kilos in the last probably week and a half two weeks, you're doing something wrong. You haven't prepared yourself well enough. Because, again, this is different to professional guys who might do one fight where they can dehydrate themselves a lot and then they weigh in the day or so before and they can rehydrate again. They can do that drop. In boxing, you generally weigh in on the morning of the fight. So if you're massively dehydrated, you don't really have time to rehydrate. And if you make it through that round, you have to fight in two days' time. And if you have to do the whole thing again, that becomes really dangerous physically it also becomes a massive detriment to your ability to to fight so you generally feel fatigued a little easier you fatigue out quicker you lose strength you lose power it's really detrimental to you as a fighter so we need to look at that and be really smart and planning our our lead in the other thing around that is generally when you're leading into a fight the typical thing you'll generally do is um, is basic peaking program. So you'll decrease the your volume of training. You try if you decrease your volume of training while trying to lose mass, it makes it even harder. It means you have to decrease your your food intake even more over that period of time. So we look at how we and you peak for a fight while maintaining a decent volume of training so it becomes easier then to lose 
the little bit of fat or the fluid that you need to lose going into a fight. But we start planning that maybe six weeks out from a fight minimum. So if you're more than, say, 2 or 3% or say 4% above your weight category or what you have to get to five, six weeks out from a fight, we know we have to work hard starting that, right that, that far out um, to build you in. So the considerations that, that I have around that is main, in your peaking phase, maintain a decent training volume. So then you need to look at what training you're doing, how much high intensity training you're doing, how much uh, basic aerobic training you're doing, how you're doing impact forces. So if you decrease some running, do you increase some bike activity at the same time to maintain a volume, knowing there's less impact force in the body and the body will freshen up that way, that we're not just dropping things out because then you virtually end up coming close to the end and because you've decreased total training load, you're virtually taking away food altogether, which is very dangerous. So there's a, a very complex play around this. Um, and also, I'm all very lucky that two seats over for me is a highly experienced nutritionist, a high experienced dietitian, I should say, nutritionist, dietitian, mm-hmm. um, and they help me and we have a plan around our athletes. Yeah, cool, cool. Get, getting back to the uh, – that's really interesting, Ross, uh, and it sparked another question in my mind. So you want them to maintain a certain amount of training volume um, to help them and so they can still eat a certain amount and, and help them lose lose the weight, that sort of thing, without dropping off too much. Is there any preference you have coming into the sort of last two weeks of what where that training volume comes from? Like is it from like in terms of your physiological load that you're talking about? Is it from sort of a lactate? Is it lactate? Is it aerobic? Like where, where do you try and get it from or do you pull things out or put more of one in the other? Yeah, so I basically go back and look at uh, if I was going to peak this athlete, what are the key training sessions I need to do? And coming into that peaking phase, they'll, they'll start doing a lot more sparring. So there's a high-intensity load in that space. My gym work will um, – the high, I'll keep a lot of strength work in the gym in because I find that is a good way of maintaining because you're trying to decrease – fat mass and a little bit of fluid, but not trying to lose all your muscle mass, you just lose your power and your strength. So you need to maintain some some good strength elements. But it's a real maintenance phase in that, how we look at it. So how you develop, how you, you decrease your volume, but you maintain some good intensity. So it's just a maintenance phase leading in. And then you look at some of your running-based activities as well. You're probably increasing some of the intensity of that, but the volume's going down. So if you look at those three things, you, it's all – High intensity, slow, um, lower volume type work, except for the the sparring, which is probably an increase in volume of sparring. Then around that, you go, well, how do I now maintain volume? I can't add in more high intensity work in that space, so I need to add in more aerobic, just general aerobic work um, to maintain my overall training load. And that doesn't have to be really difficult. One of the great successes we had with one of the female athletes going over. And she, she medaled at the last World Championships doing this. Um, she had an ankle injury going in, so she could do very limited running. But she would walk, she would get up in the morning and walk for 30 to 40 minutes and then the, uh, before she had breakfast. And then in the afternoon, after dinner, at night, 
I mean, going to find is limited food in those areas or very defined food intake in those areas. She would again do a walk after it. So it just extended the time her body had a slightly higher than base metabolic load through the day. So I started early morning to late to afternoon. So that allowed her to get a good her decrease into the in, in uh, overall mass to, to get to the fight, but it didn't increase any impact force. It didn't increase any high intensity force on the body, but it maintained a good overall training load. So it could be something as very as simple as that. And because he had an injury as well, we couldn't use running. Uh, and she went into the world championships, fit, strong, powerful, and doing uh, nothing more than tempo running. Mm. So we did all the other cross-training modalities uh, on, a, on a bike, on a rower, in the pool. So high, uh, like deep water running, doing real high-intensity five-second sprints with 15-second rest, so real high-intensity bursts and sort of stuff to allow her the load on the body, total on the body to recover from wasn't that high, but we got the physiological response from it. It also allowed the overall training load to be maintained during the, during the training time. Yeah, cool. And, and peaking process. Cool, cool, Ross. Um, the next question, and it kind of kind of leads me this, this way of thinking, is about, like, obviously – Boxing's one of the oldest sports in the world, right? Perhaps the oldest, uh, maybe up there with wrestling. Um, And they've been doing road work for centuries. Coaches probably would have figured out a long time ago if it wasn't helping them. Um, So, But there's these cultural aspects to to certain sports, established cultures and, and say, the combat sports in particular. Um, what, What has been sort of one of those cultures that you've gone, okay, this is something I maybe really think about how I can apply this to other sports and what has been another one where you've gone, even if there are any, we've gone, this might be an issue and we need to figure out something, some way of dealing with this, with what we're doing with these athletes. Yep. Yeah, so you look at boxing and their their work ethic and their, their volume of training of these guys is, is really high. Um, and for a competition that sets three three-minute rounds, so nine minutes of work, uh, the volume of work is is really high, uh, is quite high in this space. And it's probably something I look at rowing and something like that as well, just the total volume of work you can actually do with an athlete is really quite large. Um, like I say, the training, most days, three sessions a day, and they handle that quite well when the training is done really smart. Um, and you understand, the, again, spread the variability of training, have a look at how they link together, be really smart and how that combines. Um, so coming out of boxing and, and a lot of the combat sports, just their toughness and how they do that and how they structure it is is really probably a little eye-opener, eye-opener to me on just the total volume of work you can do. And it's probably something that coming from athletics um, it's probably not done great in athletics. It's probably because, again, the the endurance guys do a heap of endurance and they just run, run, run. The sprint guys do a heap of sprint work. I think there's a there's a missing gap in, in these areas of doing some aerobic work with sprint guys and doing more high and power explosive and strength work with long distance runners is really something you can probably take out of this. That you can do both and be really effective in getting the outcomes. 
Uh, I probably saw that a little bit of work with the female road cycling program, and we added in um, a lot more strength elements. And they got, they didn't decrease their fitness, but they increased their their wattage outputs on the bike and their efficiency of movement on the bike. So there's a lot of stuff we can do around that that I see um, that's came come out of that space that we can we can do high volumes of work. Uh, as long as we're smart about how we structure it and how we put it together. Um, on the flip side to that, uh, again, boxing being a very old sport, there's a lot of stuff that's based on history that is not questioned. Um, uh, things like uh, everything, well, a lot of stuff done is three three-minute rounds because that's what you do. The rounds are three minutes, so everything you do is for, goes, has, must go for three minutes. And my view of that is, again, that pulls everything into that centre ground of, of physiological response. So can you do things for shorter periods of time with longer recoveries? Can you do things for longer periods of time to so spread that out to get a better physiological response, to get a, a fitter, stronger, more powerful athlete? Because that's where you want to get that end outcome being. So if you can do that effectively, and challenge that space. Not everything has to be three minutes because boxing goes, each round goes for three minutes. So challenging that space. Challenging a little bit their running mentality as well because they all, they all run. You do a whole volume running, you've got to run. Well, yes, I agree, running is a great outcome, but if it's detrimental to your athlete being injured or is it detrimental to other aspects of their training, is that the best way of doing it? Not saying it's, it's it's a bad way of doing it, but is there a better way of doing it? Even looking at things where uh, I start combining running sessions with with other so two athletes, one's a good runner. We might be doing say one k repeats up on the track. We're going to do six of them. Um, athlete A does all six. They're a good runner. They're a good mover. They have no injuries. Athlete B might do three of them because they've had a history of, say, Achilles tendonitis or hamstring tendonitis, whatever it is, and but they don't stop it there. I have a bike sitting on the side of the track, and I'll do three 1K runs and then do three efforts on the bike or maybe even double that, so six efforts on the bike of an equivalent time frame that the running would be to get the total overall response I do, I want. So it's just about challenging a little bit in that space and being smart in getting the outcomes you want doesn't always have to be exactly the same way or exactly how history dictates it. For sure, for sure. If, you, if you're getting a post-session massage, it doesn't have to be three rounds of three minutes or something like that. You know yeah, what I mean? <laughs> and some stuff is three rounds, three minutes. That's great. Yeah. But if that's all you do, that's an issue. It's just the same as you go in the gym. If you go in the gym and do squats every day, it's great. You'll get, a, you'll get an outcome, but is that the best outcome? Mm. And in an elite performance environment, I'm always challenging and looking to find ways to get a really good outcome. Mm. And that's not looking at those sort of things and throwing it all out and going, that's, that's rubbish. We're going to do it. This is the way I think we should do it. It's looking at that and taking time to sit back and review of, well, what's the outcome of this? What are they trying to achieve? Is it achieving that outcome? How's it fitting with all the other training during the week? And then go, maybe if I manipulate here and here, I get a better outcome. 
because I always want to challenge in that space. And that's where, where I want to end up, that I'm always challenging myself to get the best possible outcome. Let's have a little bit variable on which athlete you're working with, where they are in their career, how you're going to develop them over time. All these things are going to come into that. But the day I stop challenging myself to think of finding a better way, I think I should stop working with elite athletes because the sport continually progresses and I need to continually progress with them. 100%. Mate, that's awesome. It's, it's, been, it's been awesome, uh, awesome the information you've given us today, Ross, and, and it, there's been lots of things that have just sparked my mind and I've been, like I said, I've been writing notes and I've got a full page of notes here sitting next to me. Mate, to, to finish up, I want to ask some, some quick questions um, and these can be one-liner responses. You can elaborate if you want. Some of it we might have already yep. covered. But I'd like to know what's, what's the best lesson you've been taught or you've learned on the job? Um, probably the best lesson I, I, I've probably been taught is, is to always question, try and find the why, why they're doing that, why, what's, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve. And if you can base all your thought process and planning from the initial question of why, um, you know, I think you get a far better outcome response, uh, far, far better training plans, far better programming, far better understanding of the athlete and where they need to be. So I always start and always challenge with why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's something I often do in my environment here that I'll, uh, so I've done it, I've taken my programs and given them to another SNC coach. And I've said, challenge me on this. So if you don't understand it, question me. Because if I can't give you a clear reason why I'm giving that element of a training program, I shouldn't be giving it. Because I don't understand it well enough to implement it into my training program. They don't have to agree with my, my analysis, but at least I have a why of why I'm doing that exercise or why I'm doing that element of the program. Yeah, cool, cool. Mate, what are you most excited about developing or learning in your next 18 months? Oh, um, is if the nature of my role is, is probably changed a lot. Um, I don't have that real face-to-face, as much face-to-face coaching. Um, so a lot of the stuff I'm doing at the moment, uh, my big challenges is around um, people. Um, developing people, uh, working with you know, different projects and stuff like that. So I think that uh, transitioning from uh, a coach into a, a manager of people is something that's probably challenged me at the moment. I mean, I've probably been doing it for the last five years, but yeah, that's the, it's probably the big progression of, of, of me. Uh, and it's probably something that a lot of SNC coaches will go through. You're very good technically. You can do all the stuff in the gym. You can write fantastic programs and your athletes buy in, your coaches buy in, but you step up the line, you start to managing people and get people to buy into your program or, or understand what you're doing and linking to a broader community. That's a different skill set and that's something that's um, a different challenge for an SNC coach. It's something that needs to be developed if you're going to go up the pathway of being an SNC into that uh, high performance management position. Mm. Any resources you've used for that particular purpose, or any 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 uh, anything that you've done that's really helped you? Uh, uh, fail a lot. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a good response. Uh, if you don't try, in the, the day you're going to try things, and you're going to fail, um, and that's fine. 
as long as you learn from it, as long as you go forward with it. That's probably a little cliched, but that's one of the big things. Um, don't be afraid to go out and ask questions of, of other people. Um, I'm very lucky that I've had my environment here. I'm very fortunate I can go and, and talk to a lot of people who are not any specific content experts across multiple disciplines, but also management and they've, they've worked in this space and they've worked in elite sports and they've seen a lot of things. So if you're not quite sure, go ask people and ask questions. Go online and, and uh, I do a lot of um, like podcasts and just listen to people and how they approach things. Um, and yeah, probably those are the big things for me. And I read a fair bit, so uh, reading is also an important component of, of what I do. But that, the reading is more the technical sort of stuff that I, I look at in the research. Okay. Uh, on the reading yeah. front, any any books you recommend? Or... Um, I read a lot of weird stuff. Uh, <laughs> so books, I probably no, just get out there and read. Read stuff that interests you. Um, well, what's on your bookshelf right now? Uh, currently, I'm reading a book uh, called The Man Who Mistake, Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Um, sounds like a weird title. Um, it's, probably, it's a very technical book. But it's a lot about brain function um, and people have had different brain injuries or you know, degeneration in the brain and how that's affected their ability to do things and how they view the world. So I, I have an interest in, in that. Uh, I have a big interest in, in how that, uh, how you relate to people and how you get the most out of what you do. Because in the, the day, I can write the perfect program, but if I can't get the athlete and the coach to think it's the perfect program with me, it's no longer the perfect program because they're not going to buy into it. So a lot of these sort of areas... Um, and again, I worked because my history of working with Paralympic athletes, just working with things like how they say, I've got a, an athlete with a leg amputee, how they view their leg in their mind. Because I've got one athlete who's Olympic gold medalist, um, is, a, is a single leg amp. He says he can place his, his artificial leg, his prosthetic leg, on the ground. If there's a pebble on it, on the ground, He'll say it feels like it's, it's um, just under my big toe, mm. even though it's a prosthetic leg. Mm. So his awareness of that leg is really interesting how that map and the picture it is in his mind because he, he lost his leg in an accident. So he knows what it was beforehand and his brain is now calculating what that prosthetic leg is. Mm. So uh, I have a real interest in how that then relates to how I coach him how I would coach him, not that I'm coaching him at the moment, but how I would coach him, how I would challenge him in this space and all these sort of things I find uh, are really interesting for me. So I look at a lot of that uh, mental approach and challenge and, and different coaching cues, how that affects people. Is that a good cue for that person? Do they understand it? Can they take it away and really understand what they're doing in their environment and, and self-coach? I'm a massive believer in athletes being able to self-coach. Because I won't be there for their, every session they do. And if they travel overseas, it's more, more than likely I won't be there with them. So they've got to have some self-reflective coaching. So the education of the coach, education of the athlete to be able to self-coach and understand is really important. And a lot of that is about understanding the athlete. Mate, that, that's awesome, Ross. Mate, look, I, to be honest, we could probably 
keep you chatting about all this stuff for about uh, uh, a good another hour and a half, but I, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to call it here. I'm definitely going to check out the man who mistook his wife for a hat. That sounds really yep. interesting to me. I don't think it's weird. It just sounds interesting. Um, it's a bit of a hard read, but it's, it comes from a real psychological approach to it. It's a hard read, but it's, it's a, I, I got a lot out of it, but that might just be me because I'm, I'm strange. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Mate, I'm, I'm sure I'll get a lot out of it too, and I'm sure for any listeners out there, they'll, they'll enjoy it. Mate, if people do want to get in touch, uh, what's the best way? Are you on Twitter? What, is, there, is there any way that people can reach out to you? See, I'm a massive dinosaur here, and it's probably something that you you can help me with. Um, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not. Don't have a Facebook page. I don't have anything like that. Um, so, yeah, you got to go to the conference if you want to see Ross. You got to go to the conference. Go to the conference. Go see. Um, I'm fairly open with with sending emails, or if people want to contact me through that, I'm, I'm I I'll get back to them. I'll respond to them in time. Um, yeah, I. I think stuff like Twitter and uh, Facebook used the right way is uh, very valuable. I'm just old and I haven't quite got to that point yet. I need to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really common theme we get from a lot of coaches on the podcast is, is they want to uh, want to sort of, I wouldn't say upskill, but they want to uh, want to be more involved on the, uh, in the sort yep. of Twitter and Instagram. But, mate, look, it's been awesome having you on, Ross. I really appreciate it. And, uh, Look, I've got to run, but, mate, you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks for having me and thanks to the ASCA for doing this. It's, it's, I think it's a really important um, area that you're working on and um, I've listened to most of your podcasts and they've been great and I've learned a lot from them. So thank you. I appreciate it, Ross. So, there were some great insights there from Ross on his work in combat sports and things you'll be able to take away no matter what sport you work with, be it soccer, basketball, swimming, there's something there for, for you to take and apply in your sport, guarantee. Uh, look, so, Ross is a great guy. Make sure you get along to anything you see him pop up in the near future. It'll be well worth your time. Uh, and before we go, we've got to thank Val Performance again. They're a great support of the OCA and this podcast. At the moment, with all this coronavirus stuff going on, they've got some wonderful online workshops uh, they're presenting that you should check out. Highly recommended, and of course, interested in their products, check out valperformance.com. Can't recommend them highly enough. So, we're finished for this month. Make sure you catch up with our next episode. Until you hear from me next, I'm Joseph Coyne. This is the ASA Podcast. Mm-hmm.